In nomine Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et honor mortis nostre. Amen. In nomine Patris, et Filii, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Amen. Brethren Christ, love day to Jesus Christus. In secular. This is Timothy Flanders with the meaning of Catholic. Jesus is King. You are listening or watching to the Terror of Demons morning show. It is a great day. It's the sixth Sunday resumed week mm-hmm. after Epiphany. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's a, it's a wonderful time of year when we have the resumed Sundays after Epiphany which are all about agriculture and planting because this time of year is the winter planting, or if you're an Aussie, it's the spring planting. Mm -hmm. And uh, otherwise they're in the spring for the Northern hemisphere and the fall for the Southern hemisphere. So it's planting in each case. And it's also the feast of St. Elbert the Great. I'm going to talk briefly about that. But first, let us welcome again to the show co-hosts, Kennedy and Paleocrat. Yes. Kennedy, how you doing, brother? Living the dream. Sorry, boys, I was gone last uh, Monday. My <clears throat> one of my kids was sick, so I was up. How's all your night little and, one? Oh, he's fine, but um, he was. I was up all night, sort of thing, and it is what it is. You guys have been there before, and I was like three thirty in the morning, and I was rocking him and putting the de- the humidifier on and rubbing stuff on his chest, and I'm like, I'm not going to be asleep ever again. So <laughs> I got to tell the boys that tomorrow morning is not going to happen. Yes, indeed. So uh, what's the uh, status? Do you know the status of the Terror of Demons release? Yes, January. January. It was um, supposed to be supposed to be last week, um, but uh, shortages and delays and all this kind of stuff kind of beyond their control. So they just worried that they weren't going to get the amount of copies they needed in time for the proper marketing. So uh, beginning of January. Okay. Yeah. Sweet. Well, we got the Terror of Demons re-release. Mm-hmm. on tan new cover and everything it's excellent paleo what's going on with you man well kennedy had to qualify uh what he was saying about last monday he said i wasn't going to be available monday morning because he was available monday afternoon for his show and people called him out on twitter they were like oh wait a second kennedy is on the air <laughs> it was a lot of fun no we uh you know we, we uh we missed you man and glad glad to hear that that your child is doing better and you're a good dad man you know that's that's what it's all about anyway we're all dads here thanks Jim. so it, it was awesome man but it was you know of course fortunate for you um <laughs> no, i'm just joking so but it, it's been awesome man having a good time uh we i last friday i did a speech i was invited to a group of guys they call themselves the inquisitors and very smart dudes very smart men, <laughs> the kind of guys that are into very, very deep and difficult, rather boring, but extremely important books. And one of those books happened to be one called Enthusiasm by Ronald Knox. And they had rumor, they heard rumor that I had been talking about it and they wanted me to do a speech on the Big Yellow Book. And so I did. And I'll be sharing some of those, uh, some of those quotes or not quotes, some of the clips from that event i'll share that over on the the wolfpack chat and at paleocrat on telegram and eventually also on youtube but i always do everything on telegram first and on twitter and so 
Yeah, that's what's going on. And today at, at 11 o'clock uh, Eastern Time, I'll have my second episode on reason and theology, doing a series on how not to be secular, uh, following mm -hmm. the book, How Not to Be Secular, which follows the book, uh, A Secular Age. So I'll be talking about that, and that's at 11 uh, Eastern Time. Excellent. Wonderful, wonderful, excellent. Well, the City of God versus City of Man book is now out. Mm -hmm. It's endorsed, in fact, by Kennedy Hall. <laughs> so you should definitely buy it. So that is uh, available on Amazon. Uh, the print copy is available. If you go to meaningofcatholic.com slash Our Lady of Victory, or you can go to meaningofcatholic.com slash City of God, you can get the print copy on Amazon, paperback. The ebook is available. I hope to create a an hard uh, a hardback copy with a Catholic publisher because we need to connect Our Lady of Victory Press to Catholic printing because we are still we still have one foot in the beast because we're associated with Amazon because of yeah. printing costs. But uh, God willing, we'll be able to disconnect from that in the future. The Meaning of Catholic Guild is uh, still growing. We are currently forming a uh, network the Catholic Community Network in the United States and in Canada, which is just a way to for Catholic families who are looking to move to connect with other Catholic communities that exist already in the United States and Canada. We're hoping to also have that in other countries as uh, our guild members are available. Um, so that's being built. We're also building a Catholic network of Catholic businesses and so that's what we're building with the Catholic Guild. If you want to join the Catholic Guild, go to patreon.com slash meaning of Catholic uh, guild members. You know, if you can't afford it, just give me a, send me a email and we can talk um, meaning of Catholic.com slash contact. So um, today is the 15th of November. St. Albert the Great. We also have this week St. Gregory Thaumaturgus. We've got the dedication of the Basilica of St. Peter and Paul on Thursday, St. Elizabeth of Hungary, and St. Felix of Valois. And then we have the last Sunday after Pentecost. So we only have two more weeks till Advent. Isn't it this weekend, Advent? No, no, no. This, this, this weekend is the last Sunday after Pentecost. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay, good. One more. Cool. So first Sunday of first Sunday of Advent is November twenty eight. Okay. Uh, it's and it's also never too late to join the Saint Martin's Fast, which goes from Martin Miss all the way to Christmas. Take well, on I mean, some new penance. Buddy, buddies of mine were doing a, an Exodus inspired Exodus ninety inspired uh, thing for Advent. Basically, we're just doing it, but for Advent, uh, unofficial. But I thought it was the last week, and I could have a beer. So that's sweet. One more week. <laughs> <laughs> right on right on sweet yeah so advent is coming uh saint martin's martin's fast is already here take on mm -hmm. some new penance um what can you do for the lord for the coming christ child mm -hmm. it's very exciting um i want to talk briefly because we're gonna do liberalism as a sin part two and kennedy's gonna break something down for us i hope uh in this episode um, but I want to quickly talk about St. Albert the Great because this gives us uh, always these occasions come up in the liturgical calendar where it's instructive to compare the Latin, the ancient Roman rite with the Novus Ordo. 
Um, in this case, we have the collect of St. Albert the Great. Now, it has just been confirmed recently that, uh, so years ago, there was a set of a contest named Father Anthony Chiqueda, and he did a book called Work of Human Hands, and he made the claim that only 13% of, um, or was it, I think it was 17, his claim was 17% of all of the collects in the ancient Roman, right? Did I, did my audio just die? Or no, just you're good. Me? We heard you. We heard oh, okay. You. Yep. So Anthony Chiqueda made the claim that, so if you take all of the collects of the ancient Roman, right? So when we say collects and orations, we're talking about all the different prayers so you've got the ordinary prayers of the Holy Mass, like the, the, the Kyrie, the Agnus Dei. Those are all ordinary. They're the same every time. But then you have the propers, which are the collect, the secret prayer, the communion prayer. These are all different every single Mass. And so there are propers for every Sunday Mass. There's propers for certain feast days. And so if you add them all up, all these different prayers, whether that's ordinary or proper prayers, you have a certain number of prayers, some thousand prayers. And Chiqueda looked them all up and he compared them all with the Novus Ordo. And he found that there was set only 17% of all the prayers that were contained in the ancient rite made it into the new, the Novus Ordo unchanged. So they either, they either threw out entire prayers and wrote new ones or they took the prayer as it is and then changed it a little bit and then put it in the Novus Ordo. So there's only 17%. Now, recently on New Liturgical Movement, uh, Matthew Hazel, Hazel, let's see, it's uh, myth busting. Let me just look this up so I get his name right. So this was in, um, yeah, Matthew Hazel. So he did the research. So, because in order to do this, you literally have to go through all a thousand prayers and compare them with a thousand other prayers. So it takes a little bit of work. Matthew Hazel actually went through this work again and he reconfirmed Chiqueda's data. But in fact, it turned out that it's only 13%. It's not only 17%, it's only 13% of all the prayers that are in the ancient rite made it into the Novus Ordo unchanged. And today we have an example of one of the changes. And there's a there's an article at uh, New Liturgical Movement. If you go to just newliturgicalmovement.org and type in Albert Great, you get a tale of two collects, different mm -hmm. worldviews in old and new prayers. This is from Peter Kwasniewski. Mm -hmm. So the old collect says, O God, who didst make blessed Albert, thy bishop and doctor, great by his bringing human wisdom into captivity, to divine faith. Grant us, we beseech thee, so to adhere to his footsteps and his magisterium, that we may enjoy perfect light in heaven. So there's a subjection of human wisdom to divine faith, and then it ends with the our ending in heaven. Well, what did they change in the new rite? In the Novus Ordo, they took away the subjection of human wisdom to divine faith. So the new rite says, he joined human wisdom to divine faith. So you're no longer subjecting, you're joining. And then the reference to heaven was taken away. This was another target of the Novus Ordo was that they were targeting phrases that talked about heaven uh, versus earth or despising earthly things and clinging to heavenly things. They didn't like that because that's not very modern. 
So they took that away. So there's no more reference to heaven now. So it says uh, that you join human to wisdom, divine faith. And then through progress and learning, we may come to a deeper knowledge and love of you. So reference to heaven has been taken away. Now it's just loving God without a reference to heaven. So this is just uh, another example of a systematic uh, re-changing of the old right into the new. And this is, this is one of many reasons why there are these objections to the Novus Ordo, even if the Novus Ordo is celebrated perfectly reverently with a bunch of incense and Gregorian chant, this text is in the Latin. So the objection is actually to the Latin text of the Novus Ordo. And so these, this illustrates some of the issues that are, are at work here. So any comments, gentlemen? Uh, you said, uh, nope, you <laughs> said all the things. Yeah, I'm, I'm not one to, to criticize too much uh, about the Novus Ordo. Uh, I, I happen to go to a, a church and my kids go to a school where the Novus Ordo is celebrated every single day. And they're making saints. In fact, I would defy people in the United States to find schools where kids are being made saints, it, like something like a saint factory, in fact, <laughs> over here. And so um, it's it's multifaceted, okay? So it's not just the, the, the mass. However, the mass holds a prominent place at the start of every single school day. And you can see what's happened by the placement of the mass at the beginning of every single school day being done in the way that it's done, which is not always the most beautiful thing in the universe. Okay. There's times that visiting priests will be there at times. And it's like, you know, you're kind of, whoa, you know, but um, at the same time I see this and I, and I look and I say, um, you know, and I would never want to go against Peter too strongly. He's a genius. <laughs> I, would not, I wouldn't want to debate him face to face. I'd be like, Oh man, this guy. But, but I would say, I don't know if it's two separate worldviews. You know, I think that you can say both things. And I don't think that one is in contradiction to the other. I think that you can combine those things in a way that subjects those things. We do that with holidays all the time. We do that with various symbols all the time, where we um, recognize how the two can be worked together and united with each other. And yet at the same time in doing so, that in itself is subjection. We are um, taking over, <laughs> right? We're, we're taking over your, uh, we're, we're taking over your symbols for the winter season, folks, right? Like we're coming in, we're taking it over, we're baptizing it. And that in itself, baptizing those things in that way uh, and uniting those, it'd be, for one, uh, a lot like the the yeast in the batch, right? Spreading through, you've connected the yeast in the batch and now you've got it flowing through. Uh, but it would also be uh, the Great Commission. I mean, you're ultimately doing that. So I don't want to be too critical of that. I prefer one say, hey, I, I, would I rather all of the old ones be in? Um, yes, uh, uh, unchanged. I don't know. As long as it's not, as long as it's not opposed, I won't criticize too far beyond that. But... That's what I would say tentatively. <laughs> and Peter, please don't come at me. <laughs> you know, please, please. <laughs> yeah, I respect you, buddy. All right. Yeah. Um, the issue is that um, there is a, a targeting of anti-modern elements. And so especially if we revoke the ancient right, as is, has been done, uh, and state that we there, there cannot be 
even the Ratzigarian mutual enrichment between these two. Because like you said, I made it. Yeah, that's a fair point. They're not in contradiction per se. Uh, they are in contradiction according to Traditionis Custodes, though. Uh, it's saying that the one is the, the unique uh, Lexorandi and the other is not. The other is, is some, some, some sort of threat to Catholicism that we need to actually take that one away. Um, so it would be one thing if we were saying that uh, we need to just have both and, but now they're saying we have to have either or. Um, but fair points. I'll, I'll, I'll add something though. Like this whole Novus Ordo Latin mass conversation is huge. Um, <laughs> just this isn't to be, to, to make it a, an hour conversation because we got to get into something else. But uh, clearly people can become saintly by attending the Novus Ordo. Um, it's been around for 50 years and there are still some people who are saints. Now, objectively, it's just a deficient liturgy compared to what could be offered. Otherwise, you know, things wouldn't be in the situation that they're in overall. But John Henry Weston, for example, is, I know him personally, he's an amazing man and he's a very, very saintly man. Like, I mean, I mean that, I don't mean that to blow smoke. And he does not have a Latin mass available. Um, and he gets a, the unicorn Novus Ordo. It's very reverent, you know, it's very good. And he, and he recognizes that. And so, I mean, if you're starting your day with a, a valid mass and it's uh, quiet and, you know, or, <laughs> you know, you're praying and you're in a church and there are relics there and you are saying your prayers and you are doing an act of thanks. I mean, all of these things are objectively very good things. And if that's how you begin your day and that's how you live your life, that's clearly a good thing to do. Whether or not um, it's as effective, I don't think it's possible that the Novus Ordo overall can be as efficacious. Um, just from, uh, the, I mean, I think that's just obvious by the history of the last 50 years. However, that doesn't mean that people who attend the Novus Ordo with right heart and mind in the right setting, desiring, and I, I know another man too, I won't name him, but he's a, he's a saintly man. And I don't, I think he's attended the Latin mass like once in his life or something. And um, he goes to daily mass. And I mean, he, he, he can say the litany um, of blessed Virgin Mary, litany of Loretto, like by heart, you know, he's that kind of guy. So, um, you know, he, he, clearly his whole life is Catholic and everything is there and he attends mass and he believes the faith with all his heart. So, I mean, whether or not it's as, uh, I don't think it's as, as efficacious of a mass, but it's legitimately a mass if the priest says it properly with the right intentions. So, you know, it's a good thing to do if, if you're not, uh, rather than not attending mass in that circumstance. However, this is one of the hard parts about um, trying to navigate through these, the, the, the murky waters after the, after the last 50 years. Uh, once you get convicted of a certain thing, though, then on a personal level, you become if you do, you become unable to swallow certain things, uh, not out of, I mean, maybe for some people it's out of pride, but out of, a, out of a love for God and a desire not to give him less than he's due. That's kind of where it's, I think the proper, uh, the proper um, trajectory of somebody who, who rejects the Novus Ordo as something that they're going to participate in. If that's the like way. Like an enthusiast. Like no. an enthusiast. Yes. Oh, yes, totally. No. <laughs> That's what is definitionally the fact. And I'll, I'll no. say this. Oh, it is definitionally. But I'll say this, mm. is that, you know, it's it's interesting whenever somebody says it's possible for uh, people who attend the Novus Ordo to become a saint. Um, almost every modern saint comes from that. That's it's only only somebody who's not involved with that could say that. <laughs> like we, we could look and say people can can joke and say well there's tons of saints or there's this and that they can criticize all day long 
But the saints that we recognize, the saints that are recognized by the popes and canonized by Rome, those saints, the majority of those, the va- not even close, the vast majority of those are people who attend the Novus Ordo for the last 50 years. So that's what I would say to it. So I'd say it's not like a an asterisk. It would be an asterisk in the record books for people who exclusively went to the Latin mass who were recognized as a saint. That right, right now, for the last 50 years, that would be that would be an asterisk. And people could argue that and say that's not right or that's not fair or that's the situation or it's a crisis. But in the record books, in the record books by the church, who, you know, whether whether we prefer that or not, is still the foundation and pillar of truth, um, that that is, that's how I would break that down. <laughs> say, okay, but hold on a second. This, this, yeah. this is a fantastic yeah. uh, continuation of yeah. our original conversation about Lefebvre. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, yeah. Back in the day, two years ago, when, uh, when we had a conversation similar to this. So, but we're going to, I think we're going to have to leave it right there. Hold on. Leave I got to right say there. one more thing. Kennedy Kennedy gets the last word and then he gets yeah. to tell us about liberalism. Go. You know, I understand the enthusiasm thing, but we all have our lines about what we would not do at mass. Yeah. I, I asked a buddy once who, who like, I would never, I mean, I'm not going to say I would never receive communion on the hand if I was in prison and they snuck it in and it was mean, like it was by viaticum because I was in a, you know, in a gulag or something. But um, normally speaking, I would never receive communion on the hand <clears throat> um, for a lot of reasons. However, I recognize it's not intrinsically evil to receive communion on the hand because as Timothy did a episode with massive ages, you know, like there was one of the ancient Eastern rites, but like, included communion on the hand with incensing of the hands and prostrations very different things it was not like you know father bob flicking the eucharist like a like a tootsie roll so but i talked to a buddy once who's a faithful guy and, and i said well what's your line where you would uh because our bishop is implementing vaccine passports for his priest and he's going to sideline them if they don't uh they don't comply so that's the kind of bishop we have so he does sad things to the liturgy and to the, the diocese and uh, he said, well, I don't know. I started, people started flicking the Eucharist like a coin around. I guess I wouldn't do that. And I'm like, well, the point is you have a line that you would not cross as part of what was happening because you know that's offensive to God. So it's not enthusiasm per se to say I won't do something because it's offending God just because a hierarch has said it. Because there are lots of things that hierarchs have said and asked the faithful to do over the centuries that have been rectified as not necessarily good for the faith and probably have harmed people's faith. And people of good conscience, like St. Athanasius and so forth, have said, I'm not going to get onto this movement because I think that it's wrong. Now, it's rare that that happens because more often than not, what you get is a Luther. <laughs> That's true. Most often you get, like, for example, Anthony Chiqueta. I've never read Work of Human Hands, but people who are liturgy scholars say it's objectively a great book, but Sativacantism is an error. So, you know, he was an enthusiast. He went too far. Fair enough. I'm not advocating for anything else that he said. I, I, I'm not a state of Cantus, never will be. Um, but I don't think it is per se enthusiasm to use your Catholic conscience and say something's not right. I can't do that because it's harmful to my. I love God so much that I can't do X, Y, and Z. People have done that for for forever, and and there are many saints that are canonized for that reason. All right. Well, glad we figured that all out. Uh, perfect. Uh, we'll, we'll get, we'll get, have to get back to that conversation very soon, yeah. but first we need to talk about liberalism. 
liberalism is a sin, but liberty is godly. So last week we talked about uh, Jeremiah and I kind of tried to give somewhat of an introduction to some of the difficulties and the complexities of this issue of the liberal order. Um, so Kennedy, you want to just break down some of the your thoughts that you've been having on the subject? Uh, what have you been reading? Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, so liberalism is a sin. So this is the basic reason why liberal. So, okay, back up here. Uh, there's some landmark encyclicals that people should probably read, Libertas being one um, by Leo Thirteenth. The reason I'm recommending that one as the primary one to read is because in Libertas, uh, Pope Leo XIII distinguishes between what he calls basically a sacred liberty and then a false liberty, okay? And he talks in there about people who are evil, styling themselves as liberals and so forth, and he's referring to the Freemasons essentially at that point. Um, uh, but <clears throat> as I wrote about in this article I did for 1 Peter 5 a month or two ago about liberalism as a sin, but liberty is godly. Um, this is a difficult thing about trying to understand philosophical concepts in light of Catholic teaching is that they mean different things to different people and the words mean different things to different languages and different things over different times. This is why we don't like to change the language of the mass so we don't lose the meaning. Um, <clears throat> so, for example, G.K. Chesterton called himself a liberal and it's like, whoa, G.K. Chesterton called himself a liberal. How is that possible? Does that mean he's some sort of heretic? <laughs> you know, um, well, he was writing at the time of hey, actually he was he was contemporary with um, Leo the Thirteenth and Pius X. And Chesterton was obviously well versed in the encyclicals because distributism is kind of in a lot of ways an answer to Rerum Novarum. So it wasn't as if he didn't uh, understand what the popes were trying to say, but Chesterton still proudly called himself in a certain sense a liberal. So how is that possible? Is this bursting our love for Chesterton bubble, right? That's a big deal. Well, I talked to Joseph Pierce on the subject, <clears throat> and he just said, listen, you know, this is the thing about the Anglo-Saxon culture, you know, the, the, the English evolves as a language, and it does so quite rapidly because it's not a very old language, and um, that's true. So when Chesterton defines himself as liberal, he defines it in defiance of the uh, heretical statism of the Protestant divine right of kings milieu that had created the dysfunctional yet very powerful English empire. That's kind of where his stance is. So it's kind of like whatever this Henry VIII spirit is for, I would like to be free from that. That's why he says, I want liberal, I want to have a liberality away, a liberty from that. Fair enough. That's just a philosophical usage of the word. However, liberalism <clears throat> as the actual um, idea that is condemnable, which you find in Liberalism is a Sin by Felix Sarda, Father Felix Sarda, which is a great book. Again, which Chesterton, I'm sure he read. He was contemporary with the whole thing. Um, and that book was defended by, it was defended by, by a commission at Rome as being sound doctrine. So it's a very good book. <clears throat> and in that book, essentially, the crux of why liberalism is a sin, it goes back to our Albert Magnus thing today, is... Um, it's not that liberals are wrong about all the things, because there's been clearly some very intelligent people calling themselves classic liberals. G G or Jordan Peterson is one like that. He's very obviously correct on many things. And he's and he's evolving, thankfully. I think he's becoming an actual faithful Christian. Um, but in any case, liberalism, the reason why at the outset it's a sinful um, mentality as a Enlightenment-inspired philosophy is because it subjects all things to the barometer of human reason 
which is part of the way there, but even the knowledge of God is subject to that as well. Whereas uh, from the Catholic perspective, we clearly use our human reason, but we subject those things ultimately to the revelation. We subject those things to God's, uh, what he's revealed to us. So I don't, re I don't reason my way to uh, the resurrection necessarily. I believe in the resurrection through faith, and then I can find reasons why it's also true from a historical perspective. I can then do investigation, but I don't say the resurrection depends on my ability to figure it out. That's the, that's the, that's the, this is why liberalism can be such a pernicious thing is because someone can be like exactly correct on so many matters of, of philosophy, even faith. But if the trajectory is it's true because I have discovered it to be so, and I'm the barometer, that's a liberal mentality versus I will subject myself ultimately to divine revelation. That's that's the crux of the matter. Uh, if you're going to define liberalism versus not, then from there, um, that it's like a ship. Okay, you imagine a ship going to a destination. If you're off by one degree, it's not very far. But if you drive travel for a thousand miles, you'll actually be pretty far. Of course, once you get there, that little tiny degree off with liberalism will can lead to amazing errors. Okay. Um, but again, I have to be fair. It is the classical liberalism is um, if somebody is a classic liberal and then decides through their own reason that I'm going to subject God's claims to my reason, it could be that they find them to be true and then from there develop a faith and then there's an evolution in their actual belief and that's a whole other thing. But generally speaking, that's the, the Coles notes of why liberalism is uh, an erroneous mindset. So you're you're basically putting it at the metaphysical level, which I like. Right. You're you're talking about a philo philosophical error um, where reason is not subjected to faith, or there's not a, a sort of organic link between reason and faith. There's a rationalism where reason is exalted over and against faith. Mm -hmm. And the reason why, and the reason why liberalism, I believe, was so attractive, and, and I'm talking about the, the the erroneous liberal, not the not the G.K. Chesterton. I'm a liberal in spite of Henry VIII, like against that, you know, it's a, it's a, almost a, a, a rebound or something like that, a rejection of, of, of uh, the divine right of kings in the Protestant sense and that sort of thing. Um, but the, the one that's being condemned, and I should also say, um, hmm, this is something that we can fall into as a trap, as trads, especially uh, living in North America. Uh, there is a, and this is why I need to understand original languages in order to read these things often, I think. There's a there's a really big danger in not understanding context of what a given pope is talking about at a given time for a given reason. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to be that guy and say, well, Pope so-and-so didn't say it infallibly. Well, that's silly. Obviously, there's theological notes and there are things that are binding in conscience for other reasons besides infallibility. But when a pope, for example, is addressing a particular milieu of a particular era, and a particular nation even, or a particular continent, then that thing applies to that. The term might be used in other places and not be the same thing. Another example would be socialism. Socialism was a term used before what we understand as Marxism. Um, and I think that's why Marx used it is because it was more of a, it was more of an individualism thing, this socialism philosophy. It's died out. It's died out. Okay. Uh, today, there's an example of the word traditionalism. Traditionalism is used by us, but traditionalism is also used by uh, political philosophers like Alexander Dugan. And it's this sort of weird um, mix of pagan religions, uh, whatever. So if somebody calls himself, if the Pope came out and condemned traditionalism, <laughs> let's say, 
uh, which maybe he is doing. But if he came out and condemned the philosophy of traditionalism, he would be condemning this pagan-inspired political philosophy, let's say. Um, 150 years from now, somebody called themselves a traditionalist for liturgical reasons. They wouldn't be calling themselves for the same thing. So this often happens with um, understanding metaphysical propositions. So liberalism is one of those things. Liberalism that is condemned by the popes and many, many good popes, many amazing popes, um, is a very specific philosophical, very continental Europe, little bit English Whig thing that finds itself in North America. Um, however, however, um, it's there is also a good liberty that uh, that Leo XIII calls sacred um, and distinguishes between the two. So that's a distinction that has to be made. Yeah, I want to want to say one thing. Then I want uh, Jeremiah to jump in here. Um, uh, yeah, I love what you're saying in terms of different words mean different things. This is a uh, it's kind of like a rule number one of uh, basic epistemology or, or historical mm -hmm. research, which unfortunately is not done by many. But it makes me think of uh, the first stipulation of Magna Carta. Yeah, Magna Carta is a Catholic document from the 1200s. Mm -hmm. Where the first, I'll just add there to frame our conversation. Father Dennis Fahey, who no one would call a liberal, <laughs> probably call him a lot of other names <laughs> if they weren't a traditional Catholic, um, one of the greatest scholars on the kingship of Christ in the last 200 years, he called the 1200s, the 13th century, the golden age of Christendom. So it's a very important century, so keep that in mind. Yeah, so the, the first stipulation of Magna Carta is, uh, first we have granted to God and by this our present charter have confirmed for us and our heirs forever that the Church of England shall be free and she'll have all her whole rights and liberties inviolable. Mm -hmm. So the church has basically been trying to get free, to get this first stipulation of Magna Carta ever since Henry VIII took over the monasteries and took over the church. Mm -hmm. So there's, uh, I, I like what you're saying, Chesterton's saying, he's just trying to get Magna Carta, paragraph mm -hmm. one, which is just the church should be free and have her rights to Christianize mm -hmm. English society. Mm -hmm. But uh, Jeremiah, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I would agree. Um, and I, and I, you know, I like Chesterton. Uh, I like Chesterton a lot. I like him so much. I was a contributing editor at the Distributist Review. <laughs> so like, I was one of those things where I, I have a high regard for him. Um, but I don't, I don't, uh, leave him without question at times or without disagreement and say, ah, I'm not entirely sure about that. I think Kennedy did a good job though, talking about how it's, you know, um, in the sense that he's talking about, it's, it's almost uniquely, European, and I would even go further and say almost uniquely British, mm -hmm. that it's just that that if we want to understand why Chesterton embraced the idea, uh, you'd have to look and say, well, you know, you brought up the king at the time and the conditions of whether or not you could be a Catholic and, and the kind of restrictions that on Catholicism and stuff, that that would be a reaction to that more than an ism. And I would have said that to Chesterton. I'd say, and I understand this. And I understand, in fact, I think I said this last show, as I said, I actually understand and I have to, I have to sympathize um, with Kennedy's position on this because um, he's in a country that's just cuckoo pant crazy right now. And so you have this dictatorial monster coming at you. Um, there is a, there, you're going to react to that. You're, you're scrambling for your family. You're scrambling for your church. You're scrambling to find this stuff out. And you're seeing various methods of resistance, right? Termite tactics here and there to figure out how can I stop this from affecting me? That is praiseworthy. Where it gets tough 
is where that becomes a Trojan horse for an ism. Mm -hmm. And to me, classical liberalism, like he brought up something really good about, you know, sometimes when the popes are talking, we have to understand, like, what is it exactly they're talking about? Are, they might use this certain phrase, but is that really what they're saying? Here's an example. And I, and I decided I was going to use only um, one. Okay. I said, I, I've got a bunch of these encyclicals here. I, I did this, the dorky thing and I printed them out. <laughs> it's like hundreds of pages of this, right? Really small font and uh, really small size there. Um, but I said, I'm just going to stick with, with mother and teacher. Um, because he accepts his missile probably has a little heart with some crosses on it and a 1962 at the bottom, which is symbolic. What's that? You have the Lassans. Yeah. Oh, man, that's risky. <laughs> that's risky well, business. Lassans doesn't recognize John the 23rd. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't recognize. Well, I, I went with this, but he's part of the SSPX. So the, the idea is, look, we recognize John the 23rd. This is So I said, I'm going to stick with him, you know. Okay. And and in with John the 23rd, uh, he's talking about in in paragraph eleven. He's talking about an outlook that prevails on economic matters that, for the most part, and I like the quali qualification, a purely naturalistic one, right? Which denied any correlation between economics and morality. He talks about the the uh, the valid motive for economic activity being gain. Uh, the main operative principle was that of a free and unrestricted competition, interest on capital, prices whether good services, profits, and wages were determined by the me uh, mechanical application of laws of the marketplace. And someone could say, well, yeah, well, maybe he's talking like extreme positions. And you go, well, he's talking about unrestricted competition in the liberal sense. That's paragraph 23. And the Marxist creed of class warfare are clearly contrary to the Christian teaching of the nature of man. And I thought, and I said, you know, that's, that's hearkening back, actually, a long ways. It's harkening back to Marari Voss, right? That's harkening back to that where it talks about, or or, or to Libertas even. I, the there's a great quote in in Libertas about how uh, this kind of liberalism that naturalists or rationalists aim at in philosophy. So it's not strictly about Freemasonry. He's talking about people. You you could sum up people who may not be Freemasons but yet are rationalists in this or naturalists in this who are not necessarily uh, Freemasons. Or, it was or, a specific paragraph I was referring to that he talks about okay. Freemasons. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, and, and of course, I mean, Leo Thirteenth, he was the hammer against it. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, he's the man on that on that score. Um, but he talks about how these, um, these are contrary, right? These ideas about liberalism, specifically denying the existence of divine authority, which obedience is due, over matters of everyday life of society, that these are actually contrary to the nature of man. And, and I say that's, it's unsurprising then that the fountainheads of, of especially modern classical liberalism, you can go back to the, if that's even a phrase, but you know, you could go back to uh, the origins of this and say, you know, where were they getting their ideas from? Was it from a worldview that recognizes the interplay of divine and and the 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 sacred and the secular was it porous for them or was there a kind of kantian divide between heaven and earth and did they believe that kantian divide was so sharp in fact that the rules of the state and the rules of the economy were based upon human reason and that the authority of the civil structure was rooted in the authority that emerges from people and groups and not top down as the only way that the catholic church recognizes authority in that way 
so those would be my my initial reactions to that to say you know i i appreciate it. i think he did a really good job on it but i think that um i think liberalism as as the pope says i think that unrestricted competition focusing on that because it can get slippery the 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 because not everybody who believes in unrestricted competition in the market would believe that there's no moral code that we should recognize as, as universal or heavenly. So, you know, yeah. yep. And then um, one person in the chat says, um, isn't reason, can't we, uh, I want to qualify something. They said, um, uh, where was it? Where is it? Is this one here? I'd like to know what is your position? No, no, no. Uh, I'm going to get that in a sec. This one. Uh, but because Kennedy was saying that reason must be subject to faith, but it seems to me contra logos to say this. Like, yeah, and Tim, you responded saying, of course, we can know the existence of God by reason alone. We know this from the philosophers. Um, but the point is, is that you don't subject, um, like St. Paul says, I, I walk by faith and not by sight. You know, we know certain things by faith. This is just a reality. They have to be revealed to us. This is part of the Christian faith. We can reason, we can find reasons for the Trinity being logically consistent once, once the Trinity is revealed to us, but it's a matter of revelation. That's kind of the difference. Um, okay, so I'm not a liberal, but I want to say that first and foremost. <laughs> I'm calling myself a liberal. Um, um, what I want to get to the meat of here is the subject of libertarianism. And I want to yeah, do a little yeah. bit of, what was that? I want to do a little bit of etymology here for half a second. Uh, you're right, uh, Jeremiah, to be weary of isms, etc. Um, but there were certain, there are certain isms that I think it's okay for a Catholic to believe in, like Aristotelianism, if, if that, if that, you know, mm -hmm. um, whatever. So, um, Libertarianism. Uh, there's this. We're gonna have to do like seven shows on this. But there's one um, couple things I want to qualify. Uh, people have stereotypes of what libertarianism is. Okay, fair enough. There's stereotypes of monarchy. There's stereotypes of a lot of things. Find a bad version of what something is, and then base your whole thing on that. Well, it's intellectually silly. Um, there are also um, uh, lots of different people who call themselves libertarians and many of them are very smart and some of them are Christians and some of them aren't. I'm not advocating for libertarianism as a dogma. I'm not saying that there's some sort of holy writ and church fathers that I must agree with in order to be a card carrying member or something like that. What I look at libertarianism is, is a methodology the same way I look at uh, platonic philosophy, which is how is my favorite philosophy. Um, same way people look at Thomistic ways of seeing things, ultra realism. There's very, there's a lot of different or, uh, one of Tim's favorites, uh, Von Hildebrand, he would be a personalist or phenomenologist. Which would he be, Tim? Uh, he would define himself as a phenomenologist right. in a good way. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying, in a good way. There you yeah. go, that's good. Um, so there are even people who might even argue that existentialism in the Dostoevskian sense could be used in a good way. Um, and that's a whole other conversation. Libertarianism is a outlook on the political order of things. Uh, as a way to um, advocate for an ordering of society with the maximum human thriving possible for for a certain desired end, okay? It's not a religious philosophy. It's not a spiritual philosophy. Um, just like a lot of philosophies are not religious or spiritual, but the church can exalt those things or your faith can exalt those things, again, subjecting reason to faith. So, uh I'm going to say something with all humility here about some of the things that Pope Leo the 13th, who I love greatly, uh, John the 23rd, who I, I greatly like as well. I'm not anti John the 23rd. I, I don't associate him with all things evil post, whatever. Um, um, 
I don't think that they were correct on their a lot of economic claims. Not that I don't think that they were correct on what they believed about economic claims, but I believe ultimately that economics is a science. So I'll give you an example here that you and I, Jeremiah, can agree on. I'm a basically a young earth creationist. You're not a young earth creationist, I don't think, or, or whatever. I understand that in Catholic theology, there is the intellectual freedom by what has been defined, and especially based on the Pontifical Biblical Commission and various other things. I know that it is technically possible to hold a Father Paul Robinson SSBX position, um, which he claims is a realist position mm-hmm. on creation and the, uh, and I've had conversations with some SSBX priests on this matter as well. Some are young earth creationists, some aren't, but they all agree on what has defeated Adam, especially created, um, you know, uh, it's by God's divine power. There's no qualitative difference and there's no qualitative evolution basically in the human person. That's, that's kind of the, 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 where the rubber meets the road as far as various things are concerned. Genesis is historical, but there is room for mystery. Okay. I don't believe in ancient earth, uh, ancient earth things for various scientific reasons, but I know it's not a condemned philosophy. Now there have been popes in the past. Hey, little buddy. Um, there have been popes in the past who have been young earth creationists. And in fact, probably 97% of popes, if you think of all the popes alive, right, in the, in the last 22,000 years. So it's possible that popes will write things with a belief about a fact. If you are someone who's an ancient earth creationist, let's say. Someone who's an ancient earth creationist would look at a pope writing about something to do with creation, let's say 500 years ago and say, I believe he was wrong about fact, but I don't believe he was wrong about de fide things. I believe that the popes and their um, criticisms of what they would consider to be the free market have been wrong about economic fact, but I don't believe that they've been wrong about morals. So, um, you know, eh, let's look at um, Quadrigismo Ano. That's a big one. Because that's a, that's a really important one. In some ways, more important, not more, but in a sense, it's more useful than Rerum Navarum because Rerum yes. Navarum was very, uh, very metaphysical, very, these is the concepts, this is the, you know, whereas Quadratrice Mono is 40 years of trying to work this through and we're now in the modern post-World War One age. How is this all working? Um, Pius XI, <clears throat> he criticizes what's happening and then he basically gives an appeal that we need to then do something with economics that is for the poor. Okay. I think the best thing for the poor is basically a laissez-faire free market economy, just objectively about what's happened in the last 150 years. And one of the reasons I believe that is because one of the great Catholic saints from the scholastic period, Luis de Molina, suggested the similar thing. So they were watching what was happening in, and he was defended by Robert Bellarmine. Uh, because his people believed his works might be heretical because he was saying things like that. And then after his death, I think they posthumously uh, defended his work for about 10 years. Um, and Robert Bellarmine came down and said it was fine. And the reason being, I think, um, and this is why context is so important when it comes to history. And this is why Catholics need to be willing not to move with times in the sense of, you know, the spirit of whatever the age, but in the sense of, Historical realities will change our necessary application of logical principles for the good they desire. So inflation, for example, was something that began largely in Europe with the um, uh, discovery of the new world. Economics 101, what happened? 
Well, there was a huge influx of resources, everything from gold to labor to uh, minerals and resources. And sounds funny, but this is basically why Canada was built, beaver pelts. <laughs> um, and those things were massive, though. They were, it's not to be, you know, they were, uh, it's hard to understand how unbelievable the pelt trade was in England and in France. So this changes this this changes something that was severely scarce and then becomes unscarce. So it changes your purchasing power because there's more of that thing and therefore they don't charge as much for them in the market because there's uh, a more saturated uh, existence of them. So therefore they're not as, as valuable as far as how much your money you need to pay for it. That's basically how it works. So Luis de Molina was arguing, was, was, was wrestling with these things in the 1500s. He died in like 1601 or something around then. And he was a great Jesuit. And he actually said, um, and there's a professor or a scholar at Notre Dame, uh, which is dicey, but he, it's a good uh, good thing he wrote. And he basically talks about um, Luis de Molina was saying things like it would actually be a disaster if the government got in, in the regulatory stance on economics because the harm would be much greater than the good. There's another um, anal analogy for this, for example, in... Um, Another matter um, that Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine talk to talk about. They talk about prostitution, for example, which obviously we can all agree is a grave moral problem, right? <laughs> no. So um, they say that it would actually be folly for a government to try to criminalize it because it would lead to a greater evil. That's what Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas say. Um, and that's their opinion. Um, so my, my point with this is yeah. I believe that the popes were right about their criticisms of um, the economic atmosphere, I think they were wrong about their solutions. Yeah. Um, because I, it was a matter of science, not <clears throat> a matter. So just like, a, how, what have we seen to, with this tw 20 months to slow the spread? Almost every bishop on earth is wrong about science. Almost every bishop on earth is wrong about medicine right now. Um, some of them are wrong about morals, sadly. Um, but this is not to compare Leo the 13th with Cardinal Supic, okay? But this, the, 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 um, the parallel still stands that if a pope or a cardinal or a bishop or your parish priest is saying, you ought to do this for your health, that has nothing to do with faith and morals, unless you ought to avoid something that requires you to do X, Y, and Z against the faith for your health, okay? Mm. With economics, if it's a science, which I believe it is, then if a pope comes out and says, you ought to do this because it will help raise the living standard of the poor. We're, we're, but a guy like Thomas Sowell comes around and says, look, minimum wage has been the worst thing that's ever happened to the poor. I'm, I'm going to go with what we see over 100 years based on mathematical fact versus versus something that a pope said that is debatable. Yeah, so the... I, I, yeah, go, go ahead, ahead, Jeremiah. Well, I was just going to say, you know, the, the popes talk about that, that very claim. I mean, in, in their wisdom, right? When, when they talk about these things... Um, talking about the claim that yes, there are there are certain factors within the economy that people can can look at and analyze, but at the end of the day, even as John uh, Saint John Paul II would say, that uh, economic and social matters are within the jurisdiction of uh, moral theology. And more to the point, I said this last Monday. I said last Monday that it is inevitable that anyone taking Kennedy's position will be forced. It's not it's not like it's 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 a situation that by the very nature of it will force them to say that the popes were wrong, that they have no authority 
competency and jurisdiction on economics. I didn't and say I, that. well, when you say that they're wrong about it, you're, it's an echo and I'm not putting words in your mouth. I'll, I'll put them in the mouth of the person who popularized this uh, maybe more than any other American Catholic. And that's Thomas Woods Jr. Thomas Woods Jr. Uh, in his, in a, uh, is writing on uh, an unresolved tension brings up this very thing and, and does very neatly and says, look, if, if, if someone says the popes have written consistently for as long as they've written, as many popes, and they've consistently maintained the same exact position, built, in fact, building on it, going so far as to say that the state has a, not, just a, not just a right, but in fact, responsibility. And I have a list here, roads, communication, drinking water, housing, recreational facilities, Furnishing and credit banks for farms, just wage, guilds and unions, share and profit, equilibrium of sectors, health, education, training, choice of career, physical rehab, mental therapy, disabilities, wage prices, credit, social security, insurance, limit fluctuations, goods and services to greatest number, restriction of inequalities between branches of economy, environment, and a whole bunch more I didn't write down. They have added that list consistently, and they've never, they've never gone back and said, well, you know, uh, maybe we were wrong on this. In fact, they, they, go for, they go so far. They go so far as to say this. Right here, this is John the 23rd. It's permanent validity admits no doubt. The principles are of universal application. I, I have paragraph numbers for every one of these. said if permanent validity? It's, it's permanent validity of Catholic social teaching admits of no doubt. The principles are of universal application. You mu as Catholics must reaffirm strongly that it is uh, integral to the Catholic conception of life should be taught in schools, seminaries, parishes, lay apostolates, newspapers, magazines, scientific publications, radio and TV, must study and put into practice, translate and in parentheses, translate into reality, zealously striving to help others understand. And here's the quote. Mm -hmm. They should be convinced that the best way of demonstrating the truth and efficacy of Catholic social teaching is to show that it can provide the solution to present day difficulties. Mm -hmm. And it says you must uh, conform um, their professional activities with Catholic social teaching with an attitude of loyal trust and filial obedience, or else, if in the transaction of the temporal affairs, they take no account of those principles, which the church teaches, then they fail in their obligations and may easily violate the rights of others. They may even go so far as to bring discredit on the church's teaching, lending substance to the opinion that in spite of its intrinsic value, it is in fact powerless to direct men's lives, not to inform it, not to suggest, but to direct it. And I say, that's liberalism. That's Mises. That's Rothbard. That's Hayek. That's Goldwater. That's Reagan. That's everybody we can mention that has some hint or tinge. And I, by the way, I, just to let everybody know, I didn't pull up any crazies. I didn't, I even avoided mentioning Ayn Rand. Right? I guess I just mentioned her now. I don't like Ayn Rand. <laughs> but, but I know, I'm, but what I'm saying is that the, the found, there's no, there's no straw man here. There's no, I'm not going after the bad examples of them. I'm going after mm -hmm. fountainheads of this and saying, these are the fountainheads. And in each and every one of those situations, they would say, oh yeah, well, they're just wrong about that. So, so we don't, we don't let, let me just cut in here. We got five minutes left. So I think we've brought up a lot of important concepts in terms of the one, the limits of the magisterium, what Kennedy brought up, um, the the concept of economics in terms of its moral aspect and its scientific aspect mm -hmm. which goes to the first point um and then jeremiah just brought up a very important point which is the consistency of disciplinary teaching or consistency of teaching over time which is another factor as well so these are all things that 
next show, part three, we can start with breaking these down more in more detail because we're just kind of throwing stuff around right now. But I want to let Kennedy, Kennedy, if you want to just respond to that, uh, we could have one more back and forth and we'll close out. Well, yeah, the popes can't require you to believe in something if it doesn't work for the end that they're just saying it for. Like, you can't require me to think I have to do math this way and it's not getting me good engineering. So if the Pope say you have to follow all these Catholic social principles because they have to lead to these things that you mentioned. Okay, so I have to. So if I actually care about the poor, then I'll do the things that actually work for them to get those things. So if a Pope says, you know, uh, like you said, there has to be some sort of uh, health option, right? Some some providing of health. I agree. And I think that we should probably not do it with the state because I don't think it's as effective. Uh, if the Pope say you need to provide for some sort of social security, it doesn't mean you have to provide for something the IRS runs. The IRS is a criminal organization. Um, but they, but I agree, I should work towards something that provides social security. There's many ways to do that. One of the ways to do that is to have multi-generational living. There you go. If you promote multi-generational living, you have social security. Um, if the Pope say um, you have to work for just wage, Luis de Molina dealt with this. What is a just wage? And you get paid what you should get paid for what you're doing. So if you're sweeping floors, it's worth $2 an hour. You're not supposed to be able to support your family sweeping floors. That's not a job that that's why you should not have. That's one of the reasons why you should have a minimum wage and why you should have no working age. So a 10 year old can go sweep floors for $2 an hour and a grown man doesn't do it because he can't support his family on it. Um, and I will also say, if we're talking about the consistency of teaching of the popes, again, the popes were all six day creationists for like 1800 years the popes were all and that's a matter of scientific fact is it not i mean if is it or is it is or it isn't the popes were also um well let's talk, we'll talk about the mass for a again again there's no consistency over the entire spectrum of the church on this new liturgical direction that we have in the church but somehow we're supposed to obey them on liturgy now, it's under their competence to do so because it's a matter of discipline. But there's a reason why we have things that are matters of discipline, not matters of dogma. Matters of disciplines can be can change and they can be wrong. And they have been. And the popes have done that before. Um, so I disagree, I don't disagree with anything that Pope uh, John the 23rd is saying ought to be considered. But there's no way that it can be commanded that um, that a Catholic follow the directives of what an encyclical says about how to do economics for those purposes if those economics don't work that would be insane that would be that would be uh, ultramontanism uh, to the extreme of well the pope said it so we have to make it work in reality if it doesn't work in reality it just doesn't work in reality no i i'll say this i'll say a couple things uh number one you know, sometimes sometimes when people defend themselves and they bring up a point in another person, it ends up backfiring. And this, I'm hoping, might be one of those. Um, all popes were six-day creationists. I think that's a good reason for me to question and rethink my position. Having come from atheism, I think it's a good reason. I also think it's one of the reasons why you should reconsider becoming a libertarian. So <laughs> that's the first part. The second part is that it's not so much that the popes say, that you need to do it in this way, right? right. That, that you need That's this specific thing. However, however, um, they talk about how, take subsidiarity, for example, it's a libertarian trick to say that, well, it's just the lowest rung possible, that if it can be done 
that way, then that's good. Well, that leads to Ayn Randianism. I mean, it just does. Um, it could if you if you it, have if you don't follow the faith. Well, but that's the I'm whole point is that well, right? what's well, you are so let's hope that mm -hmm. you win. But you know, but the truth is the idea that it, it doesn't have the right to direct men's lives. We're back to that. But the idea that the very nature and true aim of all activity is neither to destroy or absorb these things, but there's a balance of them between the collaboration between individuals and groups and the timely coordination and encouragement by the state of these prime of these private undertakings, not to deny the state the right to own uh, and production of public goods, um, as well, of course, as uh, right here, for reasons explained by our predecessors, mm -hmm. the civil power must also have a hand in the economy, mm -hmm. promote production to achieve social progress and well-being of all its citizens. It's not, and when they say that, like you said earlier, you I have to take though. what's, but well, not really, because mm -hmm. what you might in one way, but it's, I'm going to use you again to mm -hmm. say that um, you have to use the encyclical in a way to interpret and understand the encyclical. The, all those things that I listed, that long thing, most of those are found from this encyclical. Where, okay. the, where it says that the, the state has a responsibility in those things. Mm -hmm. If someone says the responsibility in them is to not be in them, then you're back to the very thing that no, says unrestricted the responsibility of the sense. responsibility of the state is to protect you against things that make them impossible. That's a way of the state being involved. So, for example, how could the state uh, be a part of Social Security? How about this? It's no more income tax. That's that's a, if the state said we're going to make income tax illegal, because why would I take forty percent of your money before you even get it? That's something that uh, that mobsters do um, for your protection, by the way. So you know, I agree, the state needs to have a hand in it. Liber serious libertarians do not believe in no. I mean, the ones that I'm reading, well, they believe they don't believe in no state and no power. It's just a different way of ordering that and a different size. So, for example. Uh, uh, drinking water, drinking water for sure. Drinking water is something that the state should be um, a part of. One one of the ways they can make sure you have clean drinking water as a state and a libertarian concept is your property rights. So you have uh, the right to have property on which there is drinking water. Then no one is allowed to go pollute that water because it's yours. That's the that's the reason why. Um, also. If I want to get the most drinking water to the most people, for example, then I should probably do it the most efficient way because that's probably the best for the people that want that. I don't know how anyone can believe the government in the last 250 years has been efficient in almost anything. Um, so, I mean, it's funny, you know, think about here in Canada, for example, there are like 30 different native reserves where they do not have potable drinking water. And this is from our prime minister who tells you to burn down churches because he loves natives so much. You know who could get them drinking water? It's probably Nestle. They could probably send them truckloads and pallet loads of drinking water um, faster than the government can fix their, you know, so I'm just saying there's an example of, I agree, we should get drinking water to these people who have it. So the government sucks at it. We shouldn't make them do it. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Well, I, we, we, we're all out of time. I'm sorry yeah, to, to stop yeah. this. The, buzzer, uh, the buzzers come down. The buzzers this, uh, come Fantastic down. back and forth. But I think we, yeah. we this conversation brought out a lot of great principles that I think next time we need to start talking about the fundamental principles uh, of the concept that that was that was brought up here yeah. um Jeremiah were you were you itching to say something at the very end here no 
not but other okay. than to say, well, I'll say one thing to somebody in the audience, right? Because I've, I've been following that. Anarcho-Catholics is not all libertarians are the same. The best label, in my opinion, are paleoconservatives and anarcho-capitalists. Um, yeah, um, anarcho-capitalists are pretty much, in my estimation, condemned uh, just as much as Marxism. Um, but I, with, without, let me, let me say this, the principles of it are summed up as twin rocks of shipwreck with Marxism. The church has spent more time talking about atheistic, atheistic uh, Marxism because unlike libertarianism, it was an actual threat. Um, libertarianism by and large is like herding cats. Like you can herd a bunch of commies. It's hard to herd a bunch of libertarians. Just ask the folks who travel over to New Hampshire. I have some friends who did it. <laughs> so it's a tough deal, right? It's a tough deal. But I would say that, and, and at the end of the day, that's one of the problems, isn't it? Is that because you've detached your economic position from the authority of the church in that sense, um, you're left with that, that constant no true Scotsman problem that you can talk to any libertarian and that libertarian is going to say that's not their libertarianism. And I'll say, well, that's what I predicted. I'll leave it at that. Excellent. Well, well, next week we'll, we'll have a part three. We'll have uh, more organization here to say we'll, we'll, we'll talk privately and figure out where, where we want to go to just sort of hammer out one principle after another so that we can get more in detail with this because very pressing topic, obviously. And I, I don't know about you, but I certainly want Kennedy to pay less taxes. So me too. Uh, yeah. I, I'm definitely wanted to get out of Canada. Of, he, need, he needs to illegally immigrate. He needs to get on a bike with his I family and ride his bike. He needs to get on his bike and ride right past the gate at the border. <laughs> and the Canadians will be like, what are you doing? What is this all about? And he'll be like, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> so, it would be nice did. to go to a country that, that uh, is very much based on a Jeffersonian, Jacksonian libertarianism. Thank you, Jeremiah. Oh, yeah, hey, there we go. Grand, Grand right. Rapids, even even well, our roads are built on that. Well, yeah. So let's yeah. let's uh, let's offer up a pater noster yeah. because uh, to all of us to understand and to live the economic life in our families and communities for the sake of the common good. Nomine patris et vidis peditus sancti. Amen. Pater noster qui es in celis sanctificetur nomen tuum adveniet regnum tuum fia voluntas tua sicut in cello et in terra. Panem nostrum quotidianum da nobisodie, dimitti nobis debita nostra, sicutat nos dimittimus debitoribus nostris, e ne nos inducas in tentationem, sed libera nos a malo. Nomine Patris, et Fidi, Spiritus Sancti, Amen. Jesus is King. Amen.